0: God has been good to us. The more I ponder on the book of Revelation, it's more comforting and encouraging uh, it has been. To him who loves us, Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our Redeemer, loves us. Whatever may be our situation, wherever we are, he loves us and he continues to love us, and he will always love us. Before we go for the evening's Bible study, I would request Pastor Prem to lead us in a time of prayer. Glorious Father, we want to thank you. We want to bow before you. You are our God. We breathe because of you. We exist because of you. We have hope in you, O Lord. Help us to lean on you at all times, in good times and bad times because you are our god you are our refuge you are our strength spirit of god i pray as we are studying the word of god enlighten our hearts minister to us at the point of our need help us to understand the word of god clearly and rightly feed us with the bread of heaven today today evening. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Give us that reverence, attentiveness, to understand the word of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, Anytime you have a question, you can just uh, type it out in the chat box. And you can wait for the answers at the end of the session. Uh, not only the questions that I ask, as we are studying the Word of God, any doubts you have, it's good that uh, you get it clarified. <clears throat> Today we are uh, going to the John's first vision. Uh, Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 to 20. It gives us the details of John's first vision. Now, we should always keep in mind that of the 404 verses that are in the Book of Revelation, uh, there are at least 278 verses that contain one or more references to the Old Testament. So, we will always be be cross-referencing to the Old Testament. Uh, because sometimes our knowledge of the Old Testament is not so good, so we may find it difficult, but unless we understand the Old Testament, uh, when we understand the Old Testament, it will be easier for us to understand the message of the book of Revelation. Now, Revelation chapter 1 verse 9 says, I, John, your brother, And companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now, if you read this verse carefully, there are three most important elements in this particular uh, verse. Uh, You know, we can say that conveys the message of the book. There are three important elements. So the first element, he says, I join your brother and companion in the suffering. So the first element is Christians will go through suffering and tribulation. Christians will go through suffering and tribulation, But they will not go through the wrath of God. We will not go through the wrath of God, but we'll go through the suffering and tribulation. So John identifies himself. He says, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering. In fact, at the very moment uh, that he received this revelation, he was undergoing persecution. And he was undergoing persecution because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He gives the reason why he is undergoing suffering. Because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Then he says, Kingdom. We all are in the Kingdom. Uh, If we are in the Kingdom, suffering is also a part of our uh, lives. When we are in the kingdom of God, there is suffering. If somebody says, come to Jesus, you'll have no problem. uh, That's not what the Bible says. Suffering is part of uh, being in the kingdom of God. We have already seen uh, in, in the last week, we saw that he and he loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom, and has made us to be a kingdom, we have seen that. So, Jesus Christ's first message was, the kingdom of God is at hand. So, we, we are the kingdom people, and suffering is an internal part of the kingdom of God. The third element that we see is patient endurance. We are expected to persevere in the midst of this suffering. We are expected to persevere. We need to have patient endurance. In fact, when we come to one of the letters to the churches, Christ will say, "You, those believers who have endured Patiently. In fact, he 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 commends them, he appreciates them, he acknowledges their endurance uh, in the midst of persecution. So these are the three most important things that we should remember, and that's the message of this book. Christians will undergo suffering and tribulation, but they will not undergo the wrath of God, and. The suffering is an integral part of the kingdom of God. And we are asked to patiently endure. Now, John says, I, John, your brother and companion, in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos. Now, why he was on the island of Patmos? Because of punishment. Governors of those days, when somebody was found guilty, they can either banish them, or in other words, exile them, or they can execute them, or they could enslave them. They had those powers. But here we clearly see John was on the island of Patmos, means he was exiled to the island of Patmos. Probably because he was 90 years old, the governor showed some kind of leniency towards John. We should realize, uh, we should know that uh, John was probably sent as a criminal to the island of Patmos. Why he was considered as a criminal is because as a Christian, he was a member of an illegal religious sect. Christianity was not recognized. So he was, he was considered as a member of an Ill, uh, uh, illegal religious sect. So he was sent as a criminal, and if that is true, his life would have been very difficult in the island of Patmos. Because he's a criminal, he had to work very, very hard. The Roman overseer will give him physical labor. Not only will he give him physical labor, but he will also... Because he was a criminal, he was a prisoner, uh, obviously he'll have insufficient food and clothing. And he had to lie, he had to sleep on, on the bare ground. Imagine, 90, 90 years old man. It was in the midst of such adverse situation, God is giving him this glorious revelation to John. So John introduces his first vision by telling his readers that he was on the island of Patmos because he had proclaimed the word of God and he had been faithful to the teachings Jesus had revealed. Now Patmos was a mountainous island. We can say roughly it was 16 kilometers long and 10 kilometers wide. Mountainous island, barren island, uh, around 40 to 50 miles southwest of Ephesus in the Aegean Sea. Now, the Romans used this island uh, as a place of political banishment. There were, John was not the only prisoner, there were several other prisoners because the Romans used this island as a place for political banishment. Now, Patmos was not deserted. We shouldn't consider that as a deserted island because history says uh, there was a gymnasium in Patmos and also the temple of Artemis that's the island's patron deity. Uh, So those things were there. Now what is the significance of this phrase he was on the island of Patmos? What is the significance? How does does John relate his political banishment to the Old Testament tradition? Because when he says, I was on the island of Patmos, he has got something in his mind. What is that? You can type out your answers. How does John relate his political banishment To the Old Testament tradition. Uh, I'll give you a clue, uh, because John was in the island of Patmos. In fact, he was, in other words, he was exiled to the uh, island of Patmos. In the Old Testament, the major place of exile is So you can figure it out. It's Babylon. Babylon was the major place of exile in Old Testament tradition. Now, it's important for us to remember this because John will condemn Rome as the new Babylon. When we come to chapter 17 and 18, we will come across the word Babylon and Babylon means it is Rome. In Ezekiel 1-3, we have this uh, verse, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel, the priest, the son of Buzi, by the Kebar River in the land of the Babylonians. Now John is also going to get uh, a word from the Lord. Now he's also in exile in Patmos. That's how he relates. Uh, Babylon, uh, Rome has the new Babylon so what does john say in revelation 1 10 and 11 he says on the lord's day i was in the spirit and i heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches to ephesus smyrna pergamum theatira sardis philadelphia and Laodicea.'" Now, how long John had been uh, on the island of Patmos, we don't know. But he clearly says, on a certain day, that is on the Lord's day, that is on one Sunday, he was in the spirit. And when he was in the spirit, we have no idea whether John had any writing materials in the island of Patmos we don't know when he wrote whether he was able to record whether he was able to record uh, the visions then and there at the island of patmos or whether he was able to write after he returned to ephesus because from patmos uh, the history says john returned to ephesus Uh, Ephesus so when he came there, whether he wrote, we don't know. These things are not available to us. But what is known as your voice like a trumpet. Now, what is the significance of the voice like a trumpet? You know, when, when God's revelation came in Exodus, in Exodus 19, 16, it says, On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountains, over the mountain, and a very loud trumpet blast. Now, it is only after when we follow this chapter in Exodus 20, we have the Ten Commandments. So, a very loud trumpet blast signifies that God is going to reveal something important, an important message. God is going to reveal, and that's how we have this. uh, I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, it should alert us that there is something important is going to follow after this. Now it says, write on a scroll what you see. Now this is the first of the 12 commands that John will hear Write on a scroll. In this book, we will come across uh, 12 such commands, at least 12 such places, where God will clearly tell John, write on a scroll what you see. There's only one place in the entire book where John has been forbidden to write in this entire book. In the 12 places he has been commanded to write, and only in one place he has been forbidden not to write, Uh, and that is in Revelation 10.4. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. This is the only place where John has been asked not to write it down. Now, why do the names of the churches stand in their present order? We, we saw the order Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Theatria, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Why do the names of the churches stand in their present order? Why why I'm asking this question is, uh, some of the commentators, they say the churches have been selected in the order of uh, their standing, or the status of the churches uh, during during that important stages down through the ages. But that doesn't uh, seem so. The reason why I say that is, if we, if we look at the map, and if you see how the seven churches are located, uh, you can see Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. This is the order in which John has recorded the names of the seven churches. Now, John is in Patmos. So when he's sending the scroll, which will be the first church, the nearest church, the nearest one will be Ephesus. so the first church in the list, the first, uh, the name of the first church that appears is Ephesus. Then you find Smyrna, then you find Pergamum, then you find Thyatira, then you find Sardis, then you find Philadelphia and you find Laodicea. In other words, when you send a messenger, uh, you know, in villages, those days when you have to give an invitation, uh, how do you cover the village? You start from one house, you go orderly. Uh, You cover a street, then you go to the next lane. And that's how you cover all the people in the village, if you have to uh, tell them something. It's in the same way. John is going to send a scroll. So first it will be read in Ephesus, then the messenger will take it to Smyrna, then to Pergamum, and then to Thyatira, Sal, this Philadelphia and Laodicea. It has got nothing to do with the status of the church. It is just a matter of convenience. When we send a messenger, this will be convenient, and that's the reason uh, he has selected these uh, seven churches now when he heard the trumpet uh, like voice now john turned and saw the heavenly christ in majestic and in great beauty and splendor now this is where he this is how he describes his vision he describes from verses 12 to 16 i turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. Now, we saw seven golden lampstands. Now, King James Version, instead of using the uh, golden lampstands, instead of using the word lampstands, in king james version you find the word candlesticks now i have asked that question kjv has candlesticks instead of lampstands and is a, and it is a mistake in translation why we can clearly say it is a mistake in translation The reason being, candles were not invented until the Middle Ages. Uh, Middle Ages is a period from uh, 5th century to almost 15th century. That's the Middle Ages. Now this letter was not written in the 5th century. It was written around 95 AD. So at that time, there was no candlestick. So that's why we say this translation uh, is wrong. except for two or three ver- three or two or three versions, all other English translations have uh, lampstands, and that's the right translation. Now how do we understand the description uh, that John gives to us? Now the description we please write it down. the description does not mean what it says. The description does not mean what it says. It means what it means. The description does not mean what it says. It means what it means. Now, let me give give two examples. Now, John is only describing, but the description does not mean what it says. John John means something else, and that is what it means. So we should try to figure out what John means by the description. Now let me give you two examples. One is when we say uh, somebody runs like a cheetah. Now John He's only going to describe cheetah. But what he means is, the person runs like cheetah so fast. Uh, that's, that's the way he he, the, he he describes the symbol. He describes cheetah because he sees that, but what he means is he runs fast like cheetah. Let me give you one more example. We say, it is raining like cats and dogs. Uh, we say it's raining like uh, it's raining cats and dogs. Now, if somebody says it's raining cats and dogs, will you go out and look for cats and dogs? No, not at all. Uh, that's the way John uh, explains. Now. We can understand the little bit of symbolism, because John, in this very first vision, he he gives us an explanation. When we come to Revelation one twenty, because when he write, when he's writing the description of the vision, he says he was holding seven stars in his right hand. So then John gives the explanation to the seven stars. We have an explanation of the symbol, the seven stars. Are the angels of the seven churches. And then when we saw the Son of Man standing among the seven golden lampstands. And he gives the explanation, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Uh, That's what we find in Revelation 1.13. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. Now since we already have the explanation, so we understand among the lampstands means, and among the churches was someone like a son of man. Now, what John is trying to tell his le- readers is, it is, you know, your God is not an absentee landlord. It's not that he has gone to heaven and he's absent. In fact, he is right in your midst. Because these are the churches which are undergoing persecution. And John wants to assure them that Christ is in the midst of his churches. So if Christ is in the midst of his churches, we can always expect support during our trials and persecutions. That's the message John wants to convey his readers. And because it's the word of God, that's the message that comes to us. Uh, there are pastors who are listening to this Bible study. Uh, you, We should have this assurance uh, when we are talking about church, Christ is there in the midst, in our midst. Church belongs to Christ, and Christ is there in the midst, in our midst. Uh, we may, you know, sometimes we rely more on people. People will come, people will go, but if God has called us, to be pastor of a church, we can always have this assurance that he is there in our midst. Because church is so valuable to God. It is so valuable to God. Uh, We should always uh, take this verse very seriously. Uh, The church is to God the most beautiful and valuable entity on earth. The second most powerful thing after heaven is the church. The second most powerful thing or organization or entity after heaven is church. So church is very precious to God because he purchased his church with his valuable blood. We see in Acts chapter 20, 28, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Believers and pastors should always recognize church is a very valuable place. It should not become casual to us because he has bought this church with his own blood. Because the living Christ indwells in the church, he will always empower us. When we are weak, when we are frail, when we are dejected, when we are depressed, we should have this expectancy that when we go to church, we'll meet with God, we'll meet with the risen Savior Christ, and he will strengthen us we should tell ourselves we are going to meet the risen savior this day as we meet uh, corporately we should have this assurance that god is in our midst the risen savior is in our midst so through communion with him i will be empowered whatever may be our situation when i go to church god will empower us let it not become a religious activity because it's a sunday I have to go to church. Yeah, it's okay it's Sunday, we have to go to church. But the more important thing is as as a corporate body as we worship him, we also receive his strength, his comforting presence, a word of encouragement from him. We should have that expectancy. We should have ask God, Lord, as I am going to church, meet with me, speak to me. Uh, we should have that. Now, we'll continue with this verse. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, down to his feet, with a golden sash around his chest. When John describes Christ as wearing a long robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest, uh, we should ask ourselves, Uh, Who wore that kind of clothing? Who wore that kind of clothing? Um, Because we read it as uh, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. Uh, Those days, the kings also wore such garments. Uh, Maybe it's John's way of uh, referring Christ as king, because when Jesus was tried by Pilate, uh, he asked one pointed question, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, you have said so. But in this particular book, Uh, Yeah, there is, we can relate this to the king. But in this particular book, it refers to the robe worn by the high priest. Uh, In the book of Revelation, uh, we can say that in all likelihood, uh, Christ is, we know biblically that uh, Christ is uh, present, biblically is presented as king, as prophet. Uh, but in this particular place he is being presented as a high priest because earlier itself we saw a ruler of the kings of the earth so uh, it's not it will not be a, a gross mistake to say that it is re- he is uh, referring to king but here if you see the context and when we see the old testament references and when we see the book of hebrews where christ is presented as a high priest so it refers to the priestly garment we have in exodus uh, we have in exodus uh, 284 uh, these are the garments they are to make a breast piece, an ephod, a robe, uh, a woven tunic, a turban, and a sash. They are to make these sacred garments for your brother Aaron and his sons, so they may serve me as priests." Now, when we come uh, to Revelation 1.14, it says the hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. Now, when we read this, the hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, it does not mean that Jesus Christ was prematurely aged. you know, at the age of 30, 33, if you have gray hair, we say, oh, have you become old so soon? So here it does not mean that. It shows the dignity of age. When you see an elderly person, you have a respect for that person. And John basically is taking this description from the book of Daniel, where we have the ancient of days. So in in Daniel, Seven uh, chapter seven verse nine. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the ancient of days took his seat. his clothing was as white as snow. the hair of his head was white like wool. his throne was flaming with fire and its wheels were all ablaze. Now you have to keep uh, you have to keep this in mind. Now, Daniel is describing the Almighty God. Whereas, uh, here, John is taking the very same passage and is describing uh, Jesus Christ. In other words, he's affirming uh, the deity of Christ. Now, for a Jewish mind, it's very difficult. So that's how we believe in the Trinitarian God. When John, uh, you can see in this book, uh, he's taking the Old Testament passages, which make reference to God Almighty, and he is referring the same thing uh, to Jesus Christ. And then he says, his eyes were like blazing fire. Now, what he means by blazing fires is, this eyes can just look at us and just pinpoint all the deceptions and hypocrisies that are in us. When Christ looks at us, his very look, uh, you know, can make out, uh, when He can bring out all the deceptions and hypocrisies uh, that are in us. Because in Matthew chapter 20, 10, 26, he says, for there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. Now, when we come to verse 15, he says, His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. How do we understand this? Actually, it says... His feet, uh, when he says, were like bronze, it represents strength and stability. Bronze uh, represents strength and stability. Now you may ask, how do we know bronze represents strength and stability? Now we have to contrast this with two verses that are there in Daniel. And then we can say, when his feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace means uh, it is strong. It is stable because in Daniel two thirty three it says its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. It was not stable. It was not strong. Now in Daniel chapter two verse forty one, it says, Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. Now, looking at these two verses, we interpret his feet were like bronze means. It represents strength and stability. The kingdom of Jesus Christ will be strong and stable. Now we come to verse 15. And his voice was like the sound of Rushing waters. The voice of Christ will be penetrating without any mistake, like the sound of rushing waters. Now, from where did we, from where did John get this word, word phrase? Uh, we go back to the Old Testament, and in Ezekiel chapter 43 verse two it says, "And I saw the glory of God of Israel, coming from the east his voice was like the roar of rushing waters and the land was radiant with his glory now in ezekiel chapter 1 24 he says when the creatures moved i heard the sound of their wings like the roar of rushing waters like the voice of the almighty like the tumult of an army when they stood still they lowered their wings Now, these two verses refer to the voice of the Almighty. Now, John is using the very same phrases to refer to our Lord Jesus Christ. So in John's mind, God the Father, God the Son are both equal. He has no problem. He he understands the deity of Christ. He acknowledges that now the next verse is in revelation 1 uh, it says in his right hand he, ha- he held seven stars and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword uh, we have already seen the meaning of the word seven stars the seven stars represent seven angels of the uh, churches of the seven churches Uh, We have already seen that. Now, he says that the sword coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. Now, we have to go back to the Old Testament to figure out what does it mean. Basically, what he says is the mouth symbolizes his word of judgment. Uh, that's what John means. Because in Isaiah 49.2, it says, He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. <clears throat> it is talking about God's spokesperson. So the mouth of a God spokes, a God's spokesperson could be presented as a weapon. And when we come to Isaiah 11.4, it says, But with Righteousness, he will judge the needy; with justice, he will give decision for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth uh, with the rod of his mouth; with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. <coughs> uh, God's judgment would be the weapon of his mouth. <coughs> uh, that'll be the his mouth will be the weapon uh, will bring judgment to the world. Now if you go to Revelation chapter 1 16, his face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. Imagine this vision. How glorious it must have been. Now we should realize that John's description of the heavenly Christ does not mean what it says, it means what it means. We should not say, uh, a sword is coming out of his mouth. Uh, That is not what it means. It means what it means. That is, out of his mouth will come the judgment. Uh, We should not think of how big is that sword. Is it going to be a double-edged sword or what? So, John's description of the heavenly Christ does not mean what it says; it means what it means. Now, in Revelation one seventeen, in Revelation one seventeen, it says, "When I saw him," once you go to that, where when when I saw him. I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, So when he says Revelation, he says, I fell at his feet as though dead. Now, the experience was so beautiful. It was so wonderful. John was overcome with awe that he just fell at his feet as though dead. And uh, this was the experience uh, of the Old Testament prophets, too. Uh, whenever they had vision, uh, they, they had the terror. Uh, so they always fell on their faces. And then we'll always see that there'll be a word of encouragement. Do not fear. Do not be afraid. Now, I'll give you two examples of what happens when they had the vision. In Ezekiel one twenty eight, like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell face down, and I heard the voice of one speaking. I fell face down. When he had the vision, I fell face down. In Daniel 8.18, it says... While he was speaking to me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Then he touched me and raised me to my feet. Now, the whole point of this vision is not to uh, frighten John or to overwhelm him. In fact, the whole point of vision is to encourage him, to give a message of encouragement. So here also... Christ will reassure him uh, by touching him. God, when God gives us a message, it is not to threaten us. It is not to scare us. So, but because of that glory, because of the splendor, we are unable to face that vision. So, terror overwhelms us. Uh, We are gripped with fear, but God will always assure us. Uh, In Deuteronomy 3.2, the Lord said to me, Do not be afraid of him. Do not be afraid of him. For I have delivered him into your hands, uh, along with his whole army and his land. In Joshua 8.1, then the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. In Jeremiah 1.8, Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you." Now, after encouraging John not to be afraid, Christ is identifying himself. If you read this entire vision, now after verse 17, Christ will identify himself in verses 17 and 18. What it says, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and hates Now, there are three important statements uh, in this verse. I am. Where do we have I am? In Exodus 3.14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Now Christ takes the very same title and he says, I am. I am the first and the last. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. Now, from where, uh, where do we have this, the first and the last? In Isaiah 44, 6 it says, this is what the Lord says, Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty, I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Now Christ is taking the titles that were ascribed to the Lord Almighty. He said, I am the first and I am the last i am the living god we saw the three phrases there i am the first and the last i am the living one i am the first and the last i am the living one now in psalm 84 2 it says my soul yearns even faints for the courts of the lord my heart and my flesh cry out for the living god My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. There's a beautiful verse in Hosea chapter 1, verse 10. It says, At the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted, in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. Whenever you are discouraged, Whenever you are overwhelmed with a problem, tell yourself, you are the child of the living God. You are the child of the living God. When we assure ourselves, that's what Christ is assuring John. I am the living one. So when we tell ourselves, I am a child of the living God, nothing will come to me without his knowledge. So that'll be a great word of encouragement to us. Uh, I was dead, and now look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Uh, that's what verse ten says. Uh, you no, know, verse eighteen says, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Revelation one eighteen says. I hold the keys of death, death and hates. Uh, we should not try to figure out what this death means, what hates means. It is just one realm. In other words, it's a place where the dead people go, or it, it, it denotes the place where the dead go. So when Christ says, I hold the uh, keys of death and hates, he says, I have authority over each one's life. Death will never come to us without his knowledge, because Christ holds the keys of death and hates. Uh, because Christ has the keys, the time and manner of the death of each person are under his control. so now these people who are undergoing persecution their very lives are under threat so john is assuring them nothing can separate you from the love of god you may be killed in this world but you will not be separated from the love of god because christ holds the keys of death and hates so that's why he says i am the living one I was dead, and now, look, I'm alive forever and ever. That resurrection gives us hope and courage. And at the conclusion of the vision, uh, in 19, he says, write therefore what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. Now. The, we we when we are studying this book there are two aspects what is now and what will take place what will take place later so in our interpretation we should try to find out what is now and what will take place later if you are able to distinguish uh, between what is now and what will take place later uh, then we'll be able to understand the message of this book uh, very clearly. Now, that will be our struggle. As we go through the chapters, we should try to figure out what is now and what will take place later. This is a prophetic book. So there are things which denote uh, things that will take place later, and we should try to uh, separate that. There are certain things which is referring, the contemporary things, that's happening right now. And there are certain things which are yet to come. And we should try to uh, figure out which are the things that are yet to take place. Now, in Revelation 1.20, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, when we are talking about lampstand, in the in the synagogue, they had something known as uh, menorah. So it's a seven-branched uh, lampstand. So John claims that Jesus' movement. Is the true form of Judaism. And he says, uh, seven golden lampstands. It is no longer Judaism, is no longer the true form of Judaism, is what uh, the followers of uh, Jesus believe. There were many synagogue officials those days. They were telling theirs is the true form of Judaism. And John is telling, no, no, that is not the true form of Judaism. Now in Exodus 25, 37 to 40, we have this, then make its seven lamps and set them up on it so that they light the space in front of it. Its wick, trimmers, and trays are to be of pure gold. The talent of pure gold is to be used for the lampstand and all these accessories. See that you make them according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Uh, The church is, in fact, uh, symbolizes a, a heavenly reality. Because Moses was asked to build the tabernacle according to The vision you were shown. So the church represents a heavenly counterpart to our uh, earthly realities. I have completed uh, chapter one. Uh, If you have any questions, uh, you can ask. You can unmute unmute yourself and ask. Yeah, about verse 19, it says, uh, what is now and what will take place later? In the beginning of the book, uh, we thought that for apocalyptic literature, they write the book as if it was written long back. So when it says later, it actually means now. So in that context, how do we interpret this verse faster? Does it mean later as in later today or later then? Uh, apocalyptic literature, we saw one difference because all the uh, most of the apocalyptic literature, when they wrote, they wrote in the name of forefathers mm. Enoch, Ezra, and all they were writing at that particular time and they were writing as though Enoch was writing. So he says, You seal it down. Mm. John didn't have that necessity. Mm. So, John is basically what you have seen is what is now is John's time. Okay. What will take place later is after John's time. Okay. Thank you, Pastor. Anyone else? Pastor Pastor Silvanus has asked a question. Yeah, we, yeah, we'll go to that now. Now there are when it comes to the seven stars, uh, people interpret it in different way. Uh, at least there are four major views of the angels of the churches. Now, one of the why the first one is uh, the messengers. Uh, bearing the scroll to the churches. Now although this meaning is possible, it is unlikely that John had prepared seven separate copies of the book or would send seven different messengers. It's very unlikely John had only one uh, scroll. So the first view it is difficult to accept. The second view is uh the public readers in each congregation they act like a corresponding messenger now in the synagogue we have seen that in the synagogue there was a person uh, who read the scroll so like that even in these churches there were there were there were people or people who are notified to read the uh, scripture now, According to uh, 2nd century teaching, if such a reader slipped in his reading of the biblical text, the whole congregation was held accountable before God because he acted as their agent. Now probably keeping this view, they must have said the stars refers to the the church elders. Uh, Keeping this view. Now the third view is the there may be guardian angels of each congregation. Uh, In the Jewish view, there were angels uh, in charge for each nation. So when nations become evil, the angels will be judged. That was a Jewish view. Now, the fourth view is, uh, they may represent heavenly counterparts to earthly realities. The, this, is, uh, this is the most likely view. They represent heavenly counterparts to earthly uh, realities. Silvanus, so is it clear? Pastor, could you please explain, Pastor, little more about heavenly counterparts to earthly realities? Uh, if you go to the book of Hebrews, you always find a high priest. High priest who is interceding on our behalf. Yes. And the, And the temple also came from the heavenly vision. Yes. So there are certain things in heaven. So the replica of that is church. Church is a replica of that. Okay. Like you had the temple. Yes. Now you have the church. So these seven angels is again a heavenly counterpart. Okay. Uh, will we understand it clearly? No. We can only uh, we can when we go back to the Old Testament. Uh, God did not give Moses just a vision; He showed him something. Okay. And when we come to the book of Hebrews, we see that Jesus is interceding for us as High Priest. So it it again uh, they, that's the heavenly counterpart of her earthly reality. Okay, um, but Pastor. Uh Yes, I didn't understand, like if it is heavenly counterparts, why would they be judged, will they be judged, Pastor? Uh, See, that was the third view, that there were guardian angels of each congregation, that was the Jewish view. That's one of the views, is that uh, there were guardian angels of each congregation, uh, the Jewish also believed that each nation was uh, assigned a guardian angel. Okay. So when the uh, the angels of the evil nations would be judged together with the nations they represent, that was that was the Jewish understanding. Okay. We are not taking those uh, all the three uh, things. We are taking the fourth one. Okay. The fourth one is they may represent heavenly counterparts to earthly realities. Okay. And it Is goes it like well it? when we read the book of Hebrews. Yeah. Thank you, Pastor. Anyone else? What is the Lord's Day? Um, It is Sunday is the Lord's Day. Uh, After the resurrection of Jesus, uh, the believers of Jesus, uh, they consider that as the Lord's Day. Uh, For the Jewish people, Saturday is their uh, Sabbath day, but for the believers in Jesus, it is Sunday. And from that day onwards, Sunday is referred as the Lord's Day. The Day of Resurrection is referred as the Lord's Day. So John is referring to one such Sunday in verse 10. It is, pastor. it is different from the Day of the Lord, which is mentioned as a Day of Judgment. Yeah, Day of the Lord is different. The Lord's day is, yeah, it's good to clarify that. Uh, Thank you, Pastor. Uh, The Lord's day is different. The day of the Lord is you are looking forward to the day of judgment. Uh, Shall we close if there are no questions? Okay. It it has to go back. Just give me one minute. Shall we all uh, read this as a prayer? grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from jesus christ who is the faithful witness the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth to him who loves us and has freed us from our sin by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of our Heavenly Father and the sweet communion of the Holy Spirit remain with each one of us now and forevermore thank you each and thank you everybody for joining in today's bible study have a blessed week thank you pastor thank you so much-